Keith, good afternoon. Hey, Colin. It's good to see you, talk to you again. Same here. We were just thinking that a year ago, just about as things were kind of, well, definitely getting started <laughs> here with the pandemic, we did a very brief podcast together, just two of us chatting. And right. you and I chat usually once or twice a week. Uh, I always enjoy our conversations. We just don't do this very often. Maybe we should do it more often. But um, that episode was just a simple thank you to some of the folks out there on the front lines as we were just starting to, you know, see what was coming, especially up in the Northeast and the Pacific Northwest. Um, decided to do it again today, just instead of our normal intro to today's podcast. I think it, people listening, maybe they've wondered, maybe not, that we really haven't done any episodes on COVID. Why is that, Keith? What do you think? Right. Yeah. So I think at first is we, I don't think we had the faintest idea what this was going to become. Um, I mean, I remember early on, it was, uh, I was still um, optimistic that we might have a couple weeks of, of real lockdown yeah. and then we get back to some sort of normal. And I never dreamed it would take a year or more to get to the point where we're finally beginning to see an end to the, to the whole process. Um, I think the other thing is, uh, although we did address COVID in a lot of the interviews, at least the isolation aspects of it. I didn't want to step on the toes of people who really knew things. I didn't, we were, we're not virologists, obviously. And I thought that if we brought up the subject, it would try to, to wrestle some expertise away from the people who are really trying to, to grapple with that, um, to, to come up with the answers that, that we just didn't have and we're only starting to get. Yeah, I totally agree. I just felt like we were, we might've been piling on too. I mean, everybody else is talking about this. It's, there, there's no shortage of material shows, things to read about it. And I don't know, maybe part of it was, let's just give people a break. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you we, know, it, um, I think when you look back at our episodes uh, during this time, and there've been tremendous productivity from Paraspectrum. I, I think one of the, the side benefits of this is that there's been a lot of availability of, of people who are willing to come on. Yeah. Um, and we've done a lot of podcasts during the, uh, the pandemic. Um, even though we did some escapist things, even those had at least some comment about how do we capture this? How does this affect us? How does this change the way we're approaching um, our world and our life? For instance, when we talked to Susan Eisenhower, a wonderful interview, but uh, we talked a little bit about how he, Dwight Eisenhower would have dealt with the pandemic. And so I think we were gearing it. We just didn't want to get to the same kind of things. Well, what does the lockdown mean? Should people wear masks? I, I didn't feel like that was really where we needed to take our, our um, conversation. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting to see how things are changing. I mean, take the publishing industry. We've done a lot of author interviews this year. And these authors, they can't go out to bookstores and events and do book signings right now. So. Yeah. This is their way to reach out to the to readers out there. Yeah. And I think there's going to be some sticking power to this. I mean, God, you know, an author can do 10 shows a day, presumably, right? That's right. You know, they don't have to even get on a plane. They don't have to get out of their chair. So right. I, I, I see this staying around and, and God, I, I, it's one of my favorite kind of episodes to do as an author interview, because you just, you're talking with somebody who just inundated themselves on the subject for sometimes years. Yeah, to get that level of expertise. And then um, it's fun because um, when I'm reading a book about medicine or about a medical field, I have 
things that I want answered and to actually have the author in front of me and be able to answer is just a dream come true. No question about that. Yeah. It's changed how I read too. I mean, yeah. when you know you're going to have a chance to spend an hour, an hour and a half with a person, you read the book at a much different level. You almost engage with the book, I would say, where it's, sometimes it's easy, you know, if you're on an airplane and you're just burning time, you go through a book That's quickly. Right. This, yeah. you question it. You, you, you make notes in the book. I mean, we get books sent to us by the publishers ahead of time. They're called review books in the, in the industry. And I write all over it and I make notes and I type down questions and it's, um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a point where uh, even if you don't have questions, you need to find questions. And uh, when I've sat on panels or I've been a moderator, um, you listen to the talks much differently because instead of being a passive audience, you have to be active. You have to be a one who has questions to ask. So as I'm reading a chapter, I can't just say, oh, that was very interesting, pass on to the next one. I have to say, what can I, what can I ask or what can be clarified or how, do I, how can I get the author to tell this story because I think the audience is going to benefit from it. Exactly. So I've enjoyed that a lot. And the interesting thing is to see how it's changed the way I approach interviews with people who don't have books that they're presenting, because it's almost the same thing. You look at, I'm looking at the stories of the people that are sitting in our uh, virtual studio um, for, as a narrative now, rather than just, okay, you have the, these ideas and I need to tick these boxes. Now I'm saying, okay, you're, we're going to try to see how we can get you to tell your story from the beginning to the end and how have it make some sort of narrative sense. And that's been um, really a lot of fun. I hope it's, it's played out to the audience. I hope uh, people are agreeing that the, the, um, the interviews are much more vivid. I think they are. Yeah. One of the things that's helped actually, we took a break from doing video for a while because it was we're having bandwidth issues and audio quality. And I, I mean, I don't, we're, <laughs> Zoom isn't a sponsor, but you know, we've been using them and they've nailed this. So we're back on video and seeing somebody even virtually helps out tremendously yeah. with a conversation. It's much harder to just stare at a blank screen and talk to somebody. Exactly, exactly right. Yeah. And but, seeing the, yeah, the facial reactions and and the smiles and the laughs. I mean, that's the whatever reactions that when someone has a serious face, you know, okay, this is a serious topic. Yeah, it's yeah. All the difference. Also, uh, sometimes we really do get to the end of these things, and depending on scheduling, we'll go over on time. And it just happened right. recently with um, Richard Grinker, and um, we got another thirty minutes because we're really having a good time talking about it. Yeah. I know if we're having a, if we're not having a good time, I, I don't know why anyone would want to listen to us, but if we are, I'm hopeful that some people are feeling the same. Anyway, we go on and on, but um, you know, this, like I said, this is our, our change up here to do this for today's podcast intro. This one, I'm sorry, I wasn't able to make it to this one. I had a last minute conflict, but Keith, you went solo on this one. I've done that maybe two or three times. <laughs> it's always a little nerve wracking when you find yeah. out ahead of time, but there's differences to it. Um, tell us a little bit about this guest and why we decided to finally jump into COVID a little more. Sure. Well, I'm, I gotta say I'm spoiled by your amount of preparation. There's no question. Um, oh, thanks, and in Keith, this but... case, I said, okay, I'm the one who has to ask the questions, but this was a fascinating guest. Um, not a, uh, not an author, at least not in this context. Um, we have, uh, we have Dr. Marta Induni on, who is the director of uh, COVID research at Public Health uh, Institute, which is a private organization, nonprofit. 
And they have stepped in to the breach of a lot of public health organizations and set up a COVID tracking task force and um, task forces which uh, really uh, reach out to the people who have COVID and make sure they have what they need in, in order to, to thrive and survive. Um, so amazing work. Um, this was a great conversation. For one thing, it was really easy. All I had to do was, was uh, point her in the right direction and she told the story beautifully. And it's such an important story. Um, so well prepared, uh, so smart. Um, just the, the level of activity and the level of innovation that she and the organization have come up with uh, is just breathtaking, as you'll hear. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I listened to it yesterday and um, it gives you a, a much deeper appreciation for all these people out there that are also participating in the fight and you don't hear anything about them. You don't know anything about them. Right. Um, I mean, I even felt a little guilty because we were getting calls, my wife and I, from the public health department here because our girls are out of preschool right now because they had a positive case and right now they have to be out whenever that happens for a certain amount of time. And we were ignoring some of the calls because we thought, well, what good can come out of telling them anything? They're going to keep their kids out longer, which is, of course, the wrong way to look at it. But after listening to your interview, I mean, many of these people are volunteers and they're just trying, trying to do their job. You know, there's a lot of debate about contact tracing and how efficacious it's been, but I learned a lot more listening to your interview and just a, an appreciation for people doing this and, and, and a realization too, again, that as much as this past year has really sucked in a lot of ways and it sucked more for some people than others. I mean, I, I think right. uh, personally, I've had it much easier than many people out there have, but that aside, this is a huge learning opportunity, <laughs> almost like nothing else we've had in a long time. There's That's so right. much data collected in so many different ways. Right. And if we approach this the right way after it's done, uh, this can help in all sorts of ways, in not only future pandemics, but in public health in general. Right. It's absolutely true. And Dr. Nduni was very sensitive to privacy issues, which is the big question about contact tracing. And people are always concerned about registries of any form because uh, they always say, okay, you have my information. What are you going to do with it? And right. she actually addresses that question directly when I asked it. Um, the uh, organization, uh, PHI, uh, comes at the COVID question from a long experience in tracking cancers and other um, uh, major illnesses. Um, so it, this isn't something that they, they had to necessarily invent, but it's interesting when I asked her, how did you, how did you kick into high gear? And she said, it took a lot of time Oh, sorry, a lot of person hours in a short amount of time to do it because they were up and running with their uh, programs within a few weeks of the very first case in the Pacific Northwest, which is where they started. Yeah, they may have likely been one of the first groups on this. I, in the, in the uh, country. She thinks they were. I mean, she gives credit to a lot of other groups that are doing similar work. Um, but the, you know, my hat is, is forever tipped to, to them and to everybody who stepped into the breach and said, okay, not only do we have to figure out how to treat this, and we have to figure out what this is, as we were talking about. We had no idea a year ago when you and I had this conversation what this really was going to amount to. And neither did they, but they knew it was going to be something big. They recognized it. And uh, to have the will and the foresight and the strength to, to 
go to public health officials and say, this is what we need to do, let us help you do it, is just remarkable. It's, 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 um, it's faith uh, creating because you just realize that when you put your mind to it, when Americans and human beings put their mind to something of this magnitude, they can accomplish almost anything. Does she feel that their work has saved lives? She does. She uh, she talks about it uh, possibly in the thousands. Um, it's Amazing. hard to say, but she because they've been following the um, the contact people, they've been able to encourage them to to get help. They will go to a house, and if somebody is having trouble breathing with a with a call or with a, a visit, they will call um, EMTs to get in there and help them. And so she thinks that that uh, it measures in the thousands. It may even be more. Incredible. Well, yeah. this kind of fits the bill of something, but we, we try to find these stories that they're not completely unheard of. Usually if we're able to find them, someone else can, but right. um, you know, if we're just covering the same thing that everybody else is doing and interviewing the same person that everyone else is interviewing, you're really not accomplishing anything at all. So I think this fits the bill. I mean, she's not, you know, she's not someone so obscure that you can't find her. She's out there, but she probably represents a lot of other people out there they're just quietly going about their work without any yeah. fanfare, without any thank you, without any 60 minutes interviews, any of that. And yeah. I think this is our little chance to get their stories heard too. Yeah. And I think to tout what we're doing and what they, what work is happening at the podcast level um, is this isn't a 60 minutes type interview or an NPR type interview. We're not editing people and giving sound bites and making it super, super slow. We're having conversations. And so, yes, some of the people we interview just say the same things. They've got the canned speeches. But most of them, no, most of them are, are coming up with stories that they hadn't really thought about or, or um, giving takes on it that they hadn't quite approached it or, or, you know, what you and I enjoy. They're being asked a question that makes them look at it from a different point of view. And so we get something that may be a little bit more in depth and something that people can maybe sink their teeth into. We are not a soundbite at all. We are an immersion, which I love. Yeah, and I think people recognize this if they've been listening a while. It is just the two of us. You know, we don't have the New Yorker's fact checker department in the back going through everything. <laughs> you don't and, I do that here. Oh, oh, well, good. Well, at least you got, <laughs> got on your side. I got my little reference, uh, uh, my little reference desk over here as an <laughs> Oxford English Dictionary. Yeah, but anyway, <laughs> close enough. But yeah, I mean, I think we're very. Uh, you know, cautious about who we invite on, right? Because right. the last thing we want to do is contribute more erroneous junk in the world of the internet, um, right. you know, unfiltered, unvetted. So we are putting some trust in our guests because we can go back and we can check footnotes and books and we just, we're limited on resources. Right. And, you know, Susan Eisenhower is telling us a story about her grandfather bringing Khrushchev to the family farm. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's true. I don't really have to go and interview sources on that, right? <laughs> but, um, but you know, there are other people out there and there's nothing wrong with controversy and controversial issues. It's just, we have to be very careful how we cover that because we're just not equipped to, to, to verify sources, to get yeah. other opinions. It's just not the format that we have here in case anyone is ever wondering. That's right. Yeah, we, we've often mentioned, we don't, we, um, don't mind talking about policy. We don't want to talk about politics. Right. And there are there are two very distinctive things. Um, so we may talk about the Affordable Care Act 
but we'll talk about it in how it was developed rather than uh, how people responded to it and what you know what it feels like out there. Yeah, exactly. Um, they're very important questions, and I'm for better or for worse, the COVID pandemic does develop some uh, political responses, but that's that's not where we want to be. We don't want to live in that sphere. We want to talk about real responses and about what people can do, what people are doing, um, both in terms of the virus and registration and database itself, and also how they're how they're adjusting and how they're reacting to the enforced isolation, how it's changing practices. Yeah, exactly. Even ours. Well, um, that's a good intro, I think. You know, unless there's anything else to add about her, let's uh, no, click I, off and yeah. Hear what Marta has to say. It as much as I do. So. I, I certainly did. So, um, yeah, with that said, let's get started. Welcome to Pure Spectrum, where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners. Experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating on an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl. Ride along with a former Navy SEAL physician embedded with elite Delta Force commandos. Meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation, science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon Dr. Keith Mankin, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine en route. And our guest today is Dr. Marta Nduni from the Public Health Institute. Uh, Dr. Nduni, welcome. Marta, if I may call you, and thank you for joining us today. Of course. Thank you, Keith. It's a pleasure to be here. Always like a, a little bit of a break to, to talk about some of the stuff that we're up to. Yeah, and I'm sure this is an incredibly busy time. Um, I was uh, looking at the website and I realized that uh, Public Health Institute itself uh, uh, has probably a thousand topics that we could talk about and could fill um, web shows and, and podcasts with. But uh, there's one particular one that is really germane and everybody is talking about it right now. And that's of course, COVID-19. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Public Health Institute and um, maybe talk about, um, just get us started on uh, the COVID-19 tracing initiative that, uh, that PHI is doing? Yeah, great, glad to, thank you. So Public Health Institute, it has actually been around for over 55 years. And we started working um, mostly as a, as a close partner to the state of California to, um, to try to implement and uh, be more efficient in terms of procurement and hiring and, and such. Uh, we certainly involved since then. We are now an international public health um, think tank implementer. We do some direct service, but mostly uh, program work, uh, policy, um, is something we follow closely. Uh, we do have a, a vice president of policy and programs that, that helps us uh, navigate the upcoming uh, tides, right? Um, but uh, yeah, so we've got everything from um, our, our award-winning cancer registry of Greater California that follows has followed people in California with cancer for over 30 years. Uh, we also have uh, newer initiatives such as Tracing Health um, which is our, our response to contact tracing, basically. Um, and I'm, I'm glad to talk a little bit more about that, but I do want to mention that we have other COVID-19 programs at Public Health Institute. One is uh, named Together Toward Health. 
so not to get too confused, but um, they they actually have, an, an, I'll call it an endowment, but they've um, been able to get upwards of $25 million in foundations uh, support to for us to distribute to counties and community-based organizations to advance uh, COVID-19 uh, related work. Uh, it's not meant for salaries or anything like that, but it's really to help communities with their initiatives. Um, and so that that's also very exciting. But um, Tracing Health itself started in the Pacific Northwest where we've partnered with the Oregon Public Health Institute and we're able to start our work in Washington County in, in Oregon. And from there, it, it grew into the uh, into Washington State, where we actually um, are performing functions that normally would probably lay in uh, county health departments, but we're we're supplemental to their endeavor here. So, so it's um, regional right now to the Pacific Northwest. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, okay. We calculated once that we're covering uh, over one and a half million uh, residents in the Pacific Northwest, which. Okay doesn't may, may um, not be a huge number compared to California, but, but for Pacific Northwest, it's rather large. So. Sure. And so is um, Tracing Health uh, trying to be a template? Are you thinking that this is a program that you'll be able to expand or at least offer to other regions in the United States? Absolutely. We're, we're, we've talked with many uh, local health departments. We've, we've also talked with uh, statewide health departments uh, across the country. We, uh, because it's it's COVID-19, I, I believe public health has really stepped up in terms of its collaborative spirit and wanting to uh, relay best practices, relay good information. But also, yes, we, we are uh, funded by the work that we do. And so we're, we're glad to, you know, take the gauntlet up in other counties or states. Um, we've even talked with businesses maybe about doing industry-specific contact tracing, that's a little bit more difficult um, or has its own sort of challenges in the sense that, um, you know, you'd be working with an employer with their employees. Uh, we've also talked to, to some folks around doing contact tracing in schools, um, which becomes more important as schools open up more. Um, so yeah, we are a nonprofit, I should state, uh, but we do work hand in hand with uh, county governments and um, yeah, so. Okay, so logistically, how does the Tracing Health program work? Is it a single program or is it uh, sort of locally based design just for a local community? Uh, it's both. So <laughs> um, I, I, I'm not I'm trying to be facetious, but uh, so Tracing Health is is the, the name of the overarching program. Right. But within it, we have our Pacific Northwest work led by um, Emily Hankey, who's uh, the executive director of the Oregon Public Health Institute. Uh, in California, the work we're, we're currently doing is mostly under the uh, grant that we've received from Kaiser Permanente um, to uh, work uh, within certain communities that have been hardest hit. And we have a whole sort of criteria set forth on, on how we select where we will work. Uh, I should say that uh, because of the generosity of that grant, we're also able to do workforce development and um, impact hiring. We can um, break that down a little bit more, but um, 
yeah, so we're there. We're also, you know, open to creating other lines of uh, contact tracing support work. I, I'd like to mention that we also provide epidemiological support. So we have hired many epidemiologists um, and other data scientists to work with counties and also to work within the program to, to, to really better gauge not only our effectiveness, but um, where we can do quality improvement and um, aspire to gold standards, right? Sure. Um, I, and our program is based on a model where we uh, have created micro teams, um, which are really just teams of eight contact tracers, case investigators. Then we also have a supervisor for those eight people. But then um, the the tenth uh, the tenth element of the team is a resource coordinator, and that person helps uh, our cases and contacts find support that they might need to successfully quarantine or isolate themselves. Um, I see. As you can imagine, a lot of people, if they don't work, they don't get paid. And so, right. um, you know, is it worth losing my house or losing my car? No, I'm going to go ahead and, and go to work, um, even though I'm sick. So we, we try to offset that um, mm -hmm. and connect them with, um, you know, rent assistance or any sort of financial assistance so that they can stay isolated which we know is the number one way of uh, reducing transmission. Great. So the, so the teams are not just information collectors, they're actually local actors as well. Is that right? Yes, thank you for clarifying that. They are, we hire locally. Uh, that's been one real important uh, facet of our work. It, it adds another element of uh, complexity, but, but we think it's really important, especially in, in communities that might have a special characteristics. So for example, this is a heavily Hispanic community that speaks a lot of Spanish. Well, we wanna hire out of that community. So we build trust and rapport right off the bat, um, right from the first phone call. Yeah. So um, that's been largely successful. And we also find that um, because we're hiring out of these communities that have been hardest hit, um, people have been hardest hit economically also. And so we're able to to hire folks that may either have lost a job or, or even this might be something they can do as a remote employee, whereas they're essential, um, maybe they're working as essential employees. Um, and those are, as we know, riskier um, workplaces. You know? And uh, full disclosure, I have a cousin who is um, on one of the micro teams in Oregon. Um, and a shout out to you, Danny. I don't know if you're listening, but... <laughs> um, but um, uh, so the, the teams are, are um, besides collecting information, helping with resources, they, they must have a, a hand in sort of the education of the community, what, what people need to know. Um, what, what does that look like uh, from the teams and from the program standpoint? Right, uh, that, that may be the most important element, right, is um, I believe we call it counseling, COVID-19 mm -hmm. counseling, but we certainly um, get, um, so there's essentially, well, maybe there's three elements to the contact tracing. We call it contact tracing as a shorthand, but the first piece is uh, case investigation. So we will get uh, the information about someone who's tested positive for COVID. We will call them, uh, ask them all sorts of questions. As you can imagine, if they work in a congregant setting, if they are in healthcare, that, that sort of escalates the importance of uh, 
mm-hmm. communicating back to an employer or even, um, you know, if it's a congregant setting, maybe residents. So we ask them about their workplace. We ask them about other risk factors for themselves. So for example, do they have comorbidities that make them more likely to get sick? We ask them their symptoms. Uh, and as you know, with COVID-19, many symptom, many people are asymptomatic, up to 40% is the general number. So we, we, it's really important to talk to folks because hey, I'm feeling fine, I'm just gonna go out to the store. Um, We can understand that people may not know, but also people that do know, we need to counsel them about the importance of staying at home. So uh, that's one element. And then then from those cases, we solicit um, a list of people they've been in in contact with in the previous two days. Uh, As we know, um, well, I should say two days prior to the positive test result. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, probably when they were most contagious. And so uh, we collect that list and oftentimes they don't have any contact information, but um, you know, oftentimes they do. And so we will reach out to people um, to let them know that they've been um, exposed. They're a likely close contact with someone who's been sick and we recommend that they go get tested. And that way we can, um, you know, here's another sort of swath of people that we can keep from transmitting disease. So um, that's, that's super important. I, I also want to mention that most of, most close contacts are household members. And so uh, we, we work with folks to manage their, uh, you know, their safety within a household. If someone is a case, we ask them to isolate from from their household members, essentially go into a room and maybe someone can um, leave some uh, dinner out for you, uh, but uh, stay in your room as much as possible. So um, yeah, so we work on those things, talk about hygiene, masking, um, gloves, um, clothing, you know, those sorts of things. So and then there's a, a third element that people don't talk about a lot, but we do um, daily monitoring, which means oh. we'll call folks back, whether they're cases or contacts. We, we call them every day for two weeks, make sure they're doing all right, um, you know, help them again. If, if they're having trouble isolating or quarantining, we will help them with reminders. That's so of yeah. So how long has the uh, tracing health program uh, been uh, active now? Yeah. Well, we started in Pacific Northwest in April of last year. Wow. So okay. We started putting um, a lot of these pieces together, making contacts. Uh, so yeah, essentially, I, I believe we might have been the first or among the first um, tracing uh, contact tracing programs to to emerge as soon yeah. as the crisis emerged. So that's fascinating to me. Let's set the scene. Here you are at, at PHI and all of a sudden people get when it's on their radar. Hey, there's this pandemic that uh, we suspected was here before it even came. I mean, people knew that this was coming. Um, what kind of maneuvers, what kind of planning, um, you know, how many long meetings went into being able to get this up and running within what, a month of the, of the pandemic really quote hitting? Actually, uh, Washington Pacific Northwest was, of course, the first place right. to see it. So, right. 
Um, right. So I, you know, I attribute a lot of our success and planning to um, amazing partners and um, people really committed and, and willing to work 18 hour days. Honestly, it, we, we've done a lot of prep work. Uh, we know, we hear a lot about health departments and how overwhelmed they are or emergency departments. Everyone in public health has been um, really quite affected by COVID-19, whether this was their, um, you know, whether infectious disease was their area of expertise or not. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, uh, we, we talked, we started talking soon. Um, also keep in mind that we're having our own workforce transition issues at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. So while a lot of our staff were set up to work remotely, many staff were not yet. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we, we've had, you know, we were juggling those sort of logistics at the same time as sort of designing a rollout. Um, I've got to say again, um, you know, we've got uh, people working all over the country uh, on this topic. And so we, um, you know, we tapped expertise that's out there. Uh, I myself uh, have a uh, limited expertise in general, but I, I, I do, um, I, I come from uh, directing the survey research group under public health institutes, mm -hmm. a lot of background in, um, in database management, surveys, how to, how to ask questions in the right way, um, confidentiality and, and, HIPAA and all those things that need to be taken into account also. And, and as you know, Keith, uh, there's been a lot of, uh, I don't even want to say controversy because I think public health professionals understand the value of contact tracing, but there's been some conflict around um, mm -hmm. prevention and preventative measures. Uh, and so, you know, we're also dealing in communities that are not always open to uh to these sorts of um, efforts, let's just put it that way. So there's right. also that that piece to overcome when we're reaching out for some folks. Yeah, have you um, have your micro teams found a lot of door slammers? Are there are there people who just absolutely wouldn't answer their calls and just didn't want to know? Absolutely. Um, I'll say though, for the most part, uh, for every one cranky person. Um, we have, you know, 50 grateful people. And so, uh, I, honestly, I expected more resistance, more refusals. Uh, people that refuse are not generally, you know, um, they don't, they don't go off in a tirade, they, but they'll, they'll refuse. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, we do, um, because we do counseling uh, for COVID-19, we also have uh, extensive training for our staff where they're certified in um, what a program called mental health first aid. And so we, we understand how to maybe talk to folks that are depressed or, or having uh, high anxiety around right. not just being sick or potentially being sick, but just around being isolated for so long and right. sheltering in places is of course difficult for many people. Um, so we have people that, like I said, are grateful. They say, you're the first person I've actually talked to in weeks. You're the first person to, you know, ask if I'm doing okay, um, which is, is tragic in itself. Right. right. But, um, right. but because we have that background and our staff, they're so committed. We, you know, I've heard stories of our staff calling people back 
even though it wasn't written in a protocol, right? It's like, I, I, I got to check on that person because they were really um, lonely or down the other day. And so we have these sort of two week relationships with people uh, that we take very seriously. Um, yeah, so, you know, and and of course people are, are cranky and refuse uh, and that's, you know, it, it's their, I don't know if it's their right because I know that public health surveillance has some sort of uh, a wide swath <laughs> of um, um, maybe exemptions from, from usual, um, uh, well, let me restate this, uh, and this might be a good place to edit. <laughs> but you know, um, public health surveillance is given um, a large mandate. Uh, so while we understand that counties have the right to collect data, they don't enforce that in a way that would uh, violate people's civil liberties or right to privacy. And so right. um, we may try to convince people to participate, um, but we can't obviously force people to do that. Right, sure. And I would think the daily monitoring would be would be welcome in some point. Some of the the stigma that at least historically is attached, but, <clears throat> but certainly what people are worried about are, is the quarantine, the isolation. So it's just the idea that you're locked up, nobody can talk to you, no one can, can come near you, right. which in an, in an age of mass communication is, you know, it's, it's not absolutely true if you have access to, to um, communication devices, I guess that's the issue. Right. So, um, so let's um, change gears a little bit. Um, is, uh, is the information you're collecting being pooled into any sort of, um, not probably not a registry, but some sort of data collection? Is this something that you're looking at and trying to find trends and find, trying to use at a bigger level? Right. So uh, that's a great question. We've got, uh, because we work in multiple counties, mm -hmm. we are working in multiple databases. Um, California has their system. I think many states have their own sort of statewide uh, data registry, right? Um, in California, it's called CalConnect. At the same time, because we are working uh, and one thing I'd love to discuss with you is a little bit more about our model. Um, so we can put a little, uh, put that off to the side for now, but we're, we're doing this, trying to do a clinically integrated model. Um, but back to your question about databases. So we've, we've had to design some, um, our own database in order to be able to implement our, our clinically integrated model. Uh, and, um, but, because counties also want their data, we have to sometimes do double data entry into the state. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of uh, different variations. Um, I have a colleague who says, once you've worked in one county, you've worked in one county because <laughs> there's, um, you know, everyone's got their own mm -hmm. dynamic, their own sort of system of reporting and permissions and approvals. Um, so that being said, um, is this an okay time to talk about our clinical? Yeah, please, absolutely. One of the, the early pieces that um, in getting this grant from Kaiser Permanente, and I should say that this is, uh, the, the monies are community benefit dollars, uh, and uh, the grant is actually done through the East Bay Community Foundation, um, and that's East Bay as in, um, in California. Right. So, um, 
So the foundation has granted us uh, $63 million to do this work, which is a a huge amount of money. And we've promised, um, you know, or in our, in our agreement that we would hire uh, up to 500 contact tracers, maybe more, but along with contact tracers, our program staff, resource coordinators, supervisors. So we've got, um, you know, hundreds of new staff within very few months and, and it's, it has been a large lift, but again, because of folks' commitment, uh, we've been able to do that. And one of the interesting elements in terms of the, the clinically integrated model is that we would work more directly with healthcare providers and get the information about positive cases more quickly than a county would get that information. So because of the various database and the, and the data journey in California, um, some counties may not ac- actually find out about their positive cases for a few days. And so right. we're able to shave off those few days and get to people more quickly, which means that there's less exposure and, and hopefully less illness and certainly less, less um, negative health outcomes and, and mortality. So that's what we call the clinically integrated model it's been a little bit difficult. Um, and, and, and my colleagues at uh, Kaiser Permanente would agree, um, sometimes working within other, other entities, clinical systems, right. um, there that's, that's fraught with its own challenges. Um, but we're also working side by side in counties and in a county integrated model, which is more typical, um, so yeah, we've got, we, we're doing, every implementation is a little bit different, mm-hmm. uh, but we're, we're very glad to, to be able to, um, you know, to get some data that we um, hopefully can um, look at longer term health outcomes. So I say this cautiously because uh, right now it's just a database. We're not, we don't have anything planned. We're just using our database is a way to connect with people, right. do the daily monitoring, collect the information. Um, at some point, and, and um, we don't know all the long-term effects of having been exposed to COVID-19 or having gotten right. sick. Uh, as we know, there is what's called sort of long haulers, which even though they might recover from COVID, they're still months later, they are, they're fatigued, they have, um, described as brain fog, you know, there are systems that are affected longer term. Uh, And so that's, that's exactly when something, um, a follow-up study would be very helpful, um, uh, especially connected with, um, with our uh, clinical folks, because then you've got the other sort of information around ongoing health um, conditions, comorbidities, other, other things like that. So we think a lot of good can come of this. Um, we're just right now, we're just in um, you know, implementation mode, <laughs> doing the contact tracing piece. The other pieces will, will come into place um, hopefully sooner rather than later. I think our data is very valuable. Okay, so you're not equipped right now for long-term follow-ups and monitoring, but it's something that potentially could come from the database. Absolutely. And um, I, I do want to just stress that any anything like that requires uh, protocols and reviews by our human right. subjects committees. And these, these um, 
internal review boards um, are numerous. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, it, it, it takes a while to launch a study and we don't have any planned right now. But I, I say that just because security of the data is so paramount to what we're doing uh, that anyone listening, I want them to know that, um, you know, that is our, that is actually our priority is the confidentiality of our respondents and keeping that data secure. So we, we have protocols, um, not just when we meet with, with our partners, you know, but every, you know, our, our meetings are even encrypted um, over Zoom because we yeah. want that security so important to us, so. Right, yeah, so that anticipated a question I was gonna ask in a little while about, uh, you know, what do you do when you have a subject and they say, well, what's gonna happen with the information you're collecting? I mean, where is this gonna go? Because that would be something that would cross my mind if, if I were um, the subject of one of these monitoring things. Who else is going to know about this? Absolutely. And that's, I think, one of the pluses of the clinically integrated model is we are, we are more welcomed as part of their healthcare team. And so there's less um, uh, mistrust, maybe, because they know that we're acting on, on their behalf, on the behalf of their health. In general, you know, those questions vary by district. There are uh, some counties that just keep their, and some platforms that just keep data for two weeks and then they dispose of it or delete it. There are some sort of peripheral programs. There's one called Sarah Alert, which is many, many states are instituting Sarah Alert. It's an automated um, daily monitoring program. Um, some people actually prefer texts to talking to people. Mm -hmm. So Sarah Alert is great for that, but they dispose of their data after two weeks. So mm -hmm. it really varies um, depending on the county, the entity. Um, and like I said, we, the way we're using the data is just actionable so that we can contact people and get the isolation quarantine. Right, very good. So is most of your intake from providers now, or it's pretty much whenever you hear about a case, then you mobilize? So we're, as you can imagine, um, working um, working with, with counties in and of itself, you know, we, we have business associate agreements with counties. We then also develop business associate agreements with healthcare providers. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, a lot of our healthcare providers have a... Uh, data aggregator. So um, for those listening, they don't know, I just put quotes around data aggregator, <laughs> but um, they essentially are collecting data. The um, uh, Northern California KP uses Epic um, as their electronic medical record mm -hmm. system. Um, so they, they actually go out to each instance of Epic and format it so that we get one clean data file. Yeah. Very nice, um, but not everyone has um, that sort of aggregation um, potential. So other clinics that we have, uh, we may end up working with a lab uh, uh, that's been proposed or even maybe side by side within a, a community health center. Uh, those are also called federally qualified health centers. Because this is a community benefit project, we want to be sure that we are providing benefit to all communities, not just KP members, right? And so sure, right. Uh, maybe I should have held that up more earlier on, but, but you know, our, our preference is to have 
at least 50-50, if not more on the community benefit side with our community mm -hmm. health centers. So all that is still evolving. Um, yeah, yeah. Lot, lots of moving pieces for sure. Sure. And um, another question that occurs to me is what is the outtake? What if, um, what if you're doing the monitoring and you find someone not doing well or, or looks like they're going in crisis? Are the micro teams or the are the contact tracers empowered to get those people to or to encourage them to get to medical care or can they call in medical care on them? Uh, Keith, that's such a um, a great question. We definitely try to talk to people about. Um, so when we talk to them, we we tell them symptoms to to be particularly um, careful about, mm -hmm. and if they have any of. The following symptoms be sure to get into medical care right away uh, ultimately public health institute is not uh, a county public health department so we don't mm -hmm. actually have that wide swath of um, sort of authority but we will con connect with our county partners and let them know that that there's someone who um, may be in need of help or for example another thing that happens is um, people there might be let's just someone works at a supermarket and um, we start noticing, oh, we just had three cases from this supermarket. Um, and uh, while there are algorithms that can pick up patterns and such, that's something else that, that our contact tracers are trained for. And so we will alert a county and say, there's a possible um, exposure event here, mass exposure event, and they will do more sort of um, data crunching, number crunching to see where these these are coming from. And so we do rely on the counties still to fill that public health function. We're really there to support with the with the COVID-19 counseling and uh, and then that sort of um, you know resource care as best we can. Have you had any counties who have balked at this at all? Um, here in Texas, uh, not naming any counties, but we've had sort of a a patchwork of things. Some people embrace restrictions and, and quarantine. Some have been, you know, completely, we don't want to do this. It doesn't affect us. Has that been something that you've experienced, especially in some of the rural areas in Oregon and Washington? Definitely. And um, it's it's interesting to to be working with public health officials in those counties because uh, they're they know their populations very well and they know what will play and what what is just a, a no-go, right? Um, so we've, we've, we've dealt with that. We, we had, I remember one chiropractic office, I believe um, that um, unfortunately one of their chiropractors was infected with COVID-19, came to work for several days, not realizing it mm -hmm. uh, and it exposed hundreds of people, right? Yeah. Over the course of three or four days. Um, but yeah, and that was in a county that did not embrace uh, a lot of the uh, prevention efforts. But public health jumped right in. They were on top of it. We we ended up helping them call over 300 people in 24 hours so that we could try to mitigate any any prop propagation of the disease. Or, um, at the same time, you know, we we have people that are in in other counties that are more accepting, but they also tend to be larger, and so there's there's a lot of spread just because of the population sizes, right. and it's, it's just very hard to um, to pin down the effects. Um, 
but if if you've you know taken any sort of trainings on um, contact tracing or or the elements of that, we use the Johns Hopkins University training for our contact tracers. It's a free course uh, through the Coursera platform, mm -hmm. and uh, we found we tested we went through many um, online training trainings, and and we really found that one to be the most complete. But we see that it, you know, honestly, to be effective, not every, we don't need to get 100% adherence to isolation and quarantine. Of course, that would be fantastic. But even if we get 50% of people, we've, we've actually um, de-escalated the transmission exponentially. And so um, we don't, we don't, of course, convey that typically because we, we want as many people to comply as, as possible. But mm -hmm. a lot of these efforts is really to reduce uh, the impact on, on, um, on not just on public health departments, but on, on medical care departments, on emergency rooms. Um, as we know, our, our peers in, in, um, in healthcare have been working steadily. Um, I won't say tirelessly because everyone's tired, but but just steadily and and very committed. Um, but yeah, if uh, but reducing that um, the level of transmission absolutely helps emergency rooms and our our medical peers. So. Yeah, has the advent of and availability of vaccine changed the approach at all? Are you collecting different information? Or? Yeah, we actually have uh, transformed a couple of our our teams into uh, vaccination information call centers. And so we've got uh, counties in, uh, this is in the Pacific Northwest where um, one thing because of our, uh, the striving to be diverse and offer multicultural staff. Also, we have multiple languages that our staff speak. And so I think Pacific Northwest, we have over 40 languages that we represent um, with our staff. So. Um, that's valuable when people call in um, uh, to a county and they need information about vaccination. It's been great to have our, our, our folks trained up, very knowledgeable about COVID-19, and now they're very knowledgeable about the vaccine. Um, and maybe even eventually we can help with some vaccine scheduling, depending on uh, what a county might need. So we are adapting. Um, but yeah, funny that you asked that because we're absolutely vaccine um, and we're so happy is changing that landscape. <laughs> yeah, well, it's changing the trajectory. You're already, we're already seeing the benefit and it's just I think you know, so. just the beginning of it, which is beautiful, but- Absolutely. Yeah, but uh, there is information that needs to be got out there. There's no question. Um, what, uh, what other models are, or are there, uh, programs like this uh, that are out there as well? Has, uh, is, is there anything in Europe that's gone on like this? What else is happening in the US? You know, we are, uh, our micro team model is, um, is not unique. Uh, it, we've adapted it from um, Partners in Health, which really kicked off it. I believe it was in Massachusetts was where the first contact tracing programs, you remember how hard hit the East was, still is, but um, a lot of lessons came out of the work done there. Uh, and we adapted their team model to be a little bit more, um, to have more 
alacrity, I think, that uh, and um, cohesion because of the way they're set up. We can actually move people um, as units, right, into hotspots as needed. So mm -hmm. that's been very helpful. Um, of course, Europe uh, has sort of different public health um, authority also. And so um, those are some of the things that here we in, in the US we deal with in a different way because um, there are more sort of um, just more challenges around the, around those pieces. So yeah. uh, Canada also is doing some similar work, but um, they are lucky that they have a smaller population. And so um, those, those huge, uh, they, yes, they have huge metropolitan areas, but also those, those riskier, that risk is diminished because they're not dealing with um, the same type of crowding. Um, that's one thing that I haven't mentioned yet, but a lot of people in California because of the cost of living, but even in Pacific Northwest, we find households with, you know, it's easy to find a household with 12 people in it, right. multiple families, um, especially for when we were doing some work with our, uh, some uh, food processing plants. These were people that were cleaning uh, vegetables, I believe, and, and mm. freezing them and processing them. Um, you know, they're working side by side. There were very few protections in place. And so they ended up having to shut down this whole business. Um, those are, those are, you know, not only riskier jobs, but then they have riskier sort of dwellings because they have um, multiple families. So one person comes home, suddenly you've got 12 um, likely exposed contacts, right? So right. that's something else that may be different than some of the, the lower populated areas. Um, and just the cost of living out here is, and I'll say specifically in California is so high that people can't afford a home if they're a farm worker, right? Um, they need to establish those um, relationships with, with friends um, or even um, just tenants or, or however you want to categorize them. So uh, yeah, just another tricky piece that's, I don't know if it's unique to California, but it, it does add more complexity yeah. that might not exist elsewhere. Well, it's, it's uh, great information that going forward because we have the assumption that, that there'll be different contact levels and different uh, outbreak levels. And we've sort of seen it, but now we're, we're almost getting like the London's cholera map during the uh, Victorian time. We're almost putting together a COVID map, which, which will be useful for you know, next outbreak or, or pandemics coming forward, which is incredible. Absolutely. And those, you know, those methods that were developed 100 years ago, we're still using them. Contact tracing been around for 100 years, yeah. uh, certainly used more for for other diseases, um, measles, tuberculosis, uh, AIDS during the, the um, HIV AIDS epidemics, um, although they're still used, STDs. So we know these are efficient systems of, of communicating. Uh, you know, health departments try to, you know, we, we communicate the information anonymously. We don't mm -hmm. tell someone that, oh, you know, Marta was sick and, and now you're sick. 
um, that we, we let people know they're likely exposed. Um, right. That's yeah. um, and that's been the core of, of this sort of public health 101, yeah. um, just let people know that. Um, so yeah, we, we build on those that came before us and uh, we I don't think anyone imagined to what level we uh, had to develop these um, these programs and and to the degree of, of staffing that we need. Um, I'm, I'm hoping there will be lessons learned for future pandemics. Um, and you know, those are policy decisions that I hope are made now um, that we'll, <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, it's, uh, right. if, if only we had that kind of power. Yeah, so what is the, um, ultimately will info collected from this be able to flow to decision makers both locally and, and federally? Um, and the question is, are those decision makers listening? Are they interested in, are people in Washington interested in what's happening in Washington, D.C., interested in what's happening in, in Washington State at that level? Right. Well, uh, absolutely. I'll answer the first part. Absolutely hope that we create information products uh, that can be easily um, consumed, <laughs> right, by decision makers. Uh, sometimes you know, that's just a short one page document with a lot of pretty pictures on it um, to get the message across to those very busy decision makers. What we saw in, in this whole era was how important local government is uh, and, and maybe to some degree how ill-prepared public health has been because of the erosion of funding and the, and the erosion of um, the importance of public health over the last few decades. So certainly hope that that gets elevated and that, um, you know, it's one thing to create a trillion or $2 trillion of, of funding um, for an existing problem. It's sometimes it's harder to get even the, the $500 million you need to, for prevention, right? right. So um, we're hoping that the that memories are not too short on this and that we'll, we'll speak to the right people at least about instituting future best practices right okay and what's on your wish list for what would make your job easier and um the tracing more effective is there anything that jumps out at you that you said oh if only it was this way we could do this ah that list is long keith um, <laughs> you got <time>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I certainly um, foremost wish we didn't have to do this, right? Um, wish COVID-19 was not uh, our current reality um, foremost. Uh, but then, yeah, um, of course, if people actually did the, pre uh, you know, instituted the prevention methods that are um, often talked about, that really would have gone a long way um, already. I think we would have been in better shape even during the, the last very um, uh, potent surge of cases. I think that would have been diminished. Um, and I know there's, a, you know, shelter, shelter in place fatigue, whatever you want to call it. But um, those events where people do get together, um, I was thinking around, um, Thanksgiving and then um, the holidays, the, the winter holidays, and then um, you know what's what's coming up. I, I wish people wouldn't gather in large groups. <laughs> would take those precautions. Um, it is it, you know it is a sacrifice. We are asking people, everyone we contact, we're asking them to sacrifice 
their quality of life, um, essentially for the quality of life of others. Um, and I can tell you that we've prevented death by doing this. Um, mm -hmm. And that's in the hands of, of the cases and the contacts that we talk to that the prevention of death and prevention of illness. Um, we have um, certainly kept hundreds, if not thousands of people from getting sick. And I certainly think we've prevented hundreds of people from dying from COVID-19. So ultimately, um, you know, asking people to, to just do this until we've got that 80, 90% vaccination rate. Right. Um, I think that that's my wish list, honestly. And I, I wish yeah. people, I wish we could keep people from dying. The, the recent milestone of 500,000 dead is, is just so overwhelming to even consider uh, and, and really heartbreaking when we pause to think about those lives lost. Um, you know, many of them were vibrant lives, um, many parents, many, um, you know, um, children. And by children, I don't necessarily mean minors, some minors, yeah. but, um, you know, families that have been disrupted forever. So um, that's really what my wish list is that no more death from COVID-19. Yeah, yeah, that's, a, I hope, all of our wish lists, so. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you. Well, we're, we're up against our time, so uh, this has been absolutely magnificent. I congratulate you and Public Health Institute on the work. I'm so in awe, not only of how quickly it went in, but how effectively it's working. I hope the extension, the expansion continues to work. Um, how can people find out more about you and about the work? And um, I understand that you can donate to this uh, as well. So where do we find out more information? <laughs> Thanks, Keith. Yes, Public Health Institute has a, a great website, phi.org, because it is a nonprofit. Uh, and I believe as, as soon as you land on that page, you will get um, sort of a, a pushed screen to uh, to our COVID-19 work. Certainly that's all over there. And you can, and I actually encourage folks to look because of our other programs that we've got um, addressing um, COVID-19 also together towards health. We have some great data sources like the Healthy Places Index, which the state of California is using to determine, um, you know, their areas of greatest need, a lot of good stuff there. Uh, you can uh, find me there if you need me. My, my email is on there. Glad to, always glad to chat and, um, you know, build, build really good productive partnerships with folks. Uh, that's how we're going to get through all this. So right. thank you, Keith, for a great conversation. This, yeah. And I hope you'll come back again, hopefully to tell us how it all worked and, and COVID is gone. I mean, let's hope that someday we can talk about that. But uh, if, if not that, to talk about all the other wonderful things that PHI is doing. So glad to um, do that. Thank, thank you. you. And good luck with all your work. I, I really appreciate it. All right. And so for all of you listening, I wish you a, a pleasant afternoon wherever you are and look forward to seeing you next time. This is Keith Megan for Spectrum. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com. <laughs>